Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry. Today's story is a sad case out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. A man captures women and keeps them in his basement where they are subjected to horrible things. He mostly preys on black intellectually disabled women, many of whom were prostitutes. If you've ever seen the movie The Silence of the Lambs, Gary Heidnick was one of a few inspirations for the character Buffalo Bill, he and a few other serial killers. As always, my sources are listed in the description area, and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Content warning for obvious reasons, but if you're here, you probably already know this one is gruesome and very disturbing. This is episode 72, The Case of Gary Heidnick. Now, if my audio sounds a little different, it's because... (laughs) Like three nights ago, I slept on my neck wrong and I've been having like really bad neck pain for the last three days. So it's kind of hard to like hunch over a microphone like I usually do. So I'll do my best with this one. A good bit of this story takes place in 1987. So I'll give you some facts from that year. In 1987, the popular television shows Full House and Married with Children premiered. The average monthly rent was $395. The average income was $24,000. Ronald Reagan was president. A huge 100-mile-long iceberg broke free from Antarctica. People discovered red M&Ms in their bags of candy again. They had been banned for 11 years due to a synthetic dye called Red Number 2, which was found to be not as bad as people thought it was. The number one food in 1987 was angel hair pasta. And lastly, Platoon won the Oscar for Best Picture. Gary Heidnick was born November 22, 1943. His parents are Michael and Ellen, and he has a younger brother named Terry. He was born in Ohio, but moved to Philadelphia as an adult, which is where a bulk of this story takes place. Gary had a rough childhood. His parents divorced when he was only three, and he and his brother Terry lived with their mom for four years. When he was seven, he and his brother went to live with their dad and his new wife. Gary claims he suffered a lot of emotional abuse from his father from the age of seven and on. His stepmom wasn't much better. So Gary had this issue with bedwetting. His dad would make him hang the sheets out the window so all the neighbors could see he wets the bed. How embarrassing. His dad even made him wear a shirt with a bullseye painted on the back so kids would kick him during school. Gary and his brother say they were afraid to pick things up in the house, like a glass of water, because if they dropped it, they would get beaten. He was bullied a lot in school and didn't have many friends. He did have an IQ of 148, though, and seemed to do well in his classes. Many years from now, Gary's dad will deny any of this abuse ever took place. They eventually returned back to their mother's house, but she was a severe alcoholic and had abusive boyfriends in and out of the house, and it wasn't a good environment either. 
Partway through high school, he attempts to run away with his brother and was sent to a military academy for two years, but quit right before graduation. He goes back to high school and then drops out again, and this time he joins the Army at age 17. Gary does very well in the Army. After just a year, he is transferred to San Antonio, Texas to train as a medic. His drill sergeant said he was excellent. Then he gets transferred to Germany, where he was able to receive his GED during his time working in the hospital. Gary complains that he's having headaches, nausea, and blurred vision. He was diagnosed with gastroenteritis. A neurologist takes a look at him and said he is displaying symptoms of mental illness and is given an antipsychotic medication to take. It's one that treats anxiety disorders and also helps with nausea. He is also diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder. In 1967, Gary begins working as a nurse at an institution for mentally challenged adults and children. Also during this time, Gary was in and out of psychiatric hospitals, as well as his brother Terry. Both had attempted suicide a few times, Gary at 13 attempts. Gary is terminated from the institution because of the way he spoke to some of the patients and he kept getting an attitude with them. His mental illness was so severe that not only was he honorably discharged from the army, but he was given 100% disability. So he's able to collect a disability check every month and no longer has to work. Gary's mother, who has bone cancer, committed suicide on Mother's Day in 1970. She had been a severe alcoholic for the last several years. Gary is now 28 years old and it's 1971. His army career is behind him and he is living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Gary decides he wants to start a church and be the pastor. He, he had driven out to California and back and it was on this trip that he said the voice of God was telling him to pursue this. So he gets ordained. The name of the church is the United Church of the Ministers of God. Sunday services took place at his home his congregation consisted of five people, all of who are mentally challenged. He made a $1,500 deposit into his Merrill Lynch bank account, which would ultimately turn into $500,000. He had gained more church members over the years, and his house was full every Sunday. Gary had been seeing a woman at this time named Gail Linkow. She became pregnant by him, but the child was put into foster care shortly after birth due to Gail being mentally incompetent of caring for the child. He met a woman named Anjanette at the institution that he had worked at. Anjanette and her sister Alberta were both patients there. Anjanette and Gary have a daughter together, but the baby is quickly taken away due to Anjanette's mental disabilities. Alberta, her sister, is still in the institution, and Gary signs her out on a day pass. Now, Alberta has severe mental disabilities. He's going to take her out for the day and return her in the evening, but he doesn't return her. Instead, he imprisoned her in the basement of his house where she was subjected to sexual assaults. After a week, yes, it, it took the institution one week to realize that she hadn't been returned from her day trip. They go looking for her at Gary's house. He answers the door and tells them that he bought her a one-way bus ticket to another area of Pennsylvania and that she's not here anymore. They come back with the police and he allows them to search his home. They search everywhere and then they head down to the basement and there's a storage room off to the side. 
Inside, they find Alberta. She is having a full-on meltdown and crying and shaking. She recognized the caregivers from the institution and ran up to them and she wouldn't let them go. Gary ended up getting a lot of the charges dropped because Alberto wasn't mentally capable of testifying. He was still sentenced to seven years and only had to serve three. Gary is released from prison in 1983. He still has his church, which is generating a lot of money. He has his disability benefits, but was able to use his church's money to invest in stocks and buy a Cadillac, a Lincoln Continental, and a Rolls Royce. He also buys a home at 3520 Marshall Street in Philadelphia. This house is going to become infamously known for where most of its crimes took place. You can see, still see this house today in the city of Philadelphia. Just look up 3520 Marshall Street. It's a row home in the Fair Hill, Kensington area. It looks pretty dilapidated now and was sold in 2020 for $25,000. I looked up the tax records and Gary bought it in 1984 for $15,900. I'm honestly surprised that the house listing from 2020 boasts about its finished basement and you'll see why soon enough. Today this neighborhood in Philadelphia is riddled with crime and it's not a good place to be after dark. It wasn't much different back then though. I know people who live near the Kensington part of Philly and they say you hear gunshots at night all the time and there's drug deals going down on every corner. The statistics show there's a lot of violent crime. I love Philadelphia, though. It's my favorite city. I just fear for the residents in certain areas at times. Gary had been writing letters back and forth to a 22-year-old woman in the Philippines named Betty Disto. According to an article I read that was written in 1987, Betty was a mail-order bride. They conversed back and forth for two years before she came to America. And in 9, October 1985, Gary and Betty get married in Elkton, Maryland. This marriage is going to go south pretty quickly, though. Gary began being abusive towards Betty. He even had women over to the house, and he would have sex with them while making Betty watch. Sometimes he would have three women in his bed while Betty had to stand and watch. He told her this is how marriages in America worked. In fact, she should be lucky that he has sex with all these women and he chooses her to marry. Gary began raping Betty frequently, and after less than a year, Betty reached out to the Filipino consulate in New York and told them about the abuse her husband had been putting her through. She wrote in her native language that Gary sometimes made her stand in the corner for 12 hours and she was forced to sleep on the floor. Betty filled a bag with clothes and hid it in the bushes out front so she could tell him she was leaving to go shopping and grab the bag and not come back. The Filipino community helped her escape. Gary later found out that he had gotten Betty pregnant after she requested child support payments from him. She had given birth to a son named Jesse. Gary did not face any punishment from what he did to Betty. The reason was because she didn't show up to court to testify, likely because she was too scared. I warned you guys at the beginning, but I'll warn you again now because it's not too late for you to turn around. This is where things are gonna get gruesome. Over the next four months, November 1986 to March 1987, Gary is going to kidnap six women, all of whom are black. Some are mentally disabled. All of these women are between the ages of 18 and 26. What he does to them is gruesome. According to a lengthy write-up by Patrick Bellamy, on November 26, 1986, Gary is driving through Philadelphia and looking for a prostitute. 
This is Thanksgiving night. He spots a young woman named Josefina Rivera. Josefina is a sex worker who has children and a boyfriend. She and her boyfriend live in Philadelphia and had a big fight this Thanksgiving night. So Josefina leaves and begins walking the streets in hopes of finding someone and getting paid. Suddenly, a white Cadillac pulls up beside her. The driver is Gary Heidnick. He seems well off and handsome. She gets in and he tells her they are going back to his house. She's a little nervous because she usually just performs services in the car. She gets paid and she gets out. Not this time. This customer wants to take her back to his house. They get to his house and she sees a Rolls Royce parked out front and was confused because this man had all this expensive stuff and cars but lived in a inexpensive house in this seedy neighborhood. But whatever, she just wants to get paid and get out of there. She noticed something strange about his house key. It didn't look like a normal key, it was half a key. He explained that the other half stays in the lock and you need his half key to open the door. It was so only he could get in. She just chalked it up to being a really unsafe area and he just wanted extra security. When Josefina goes inside, she noticed there were $1 and $5 bills all over the walls, almost like a wallpaper. She also noticed pennies glued to the kitchen walls. She notices all the furniture in the house is cheap and aging. They have sex in the bedroom and he paid her $20. When she is getting dressed to leave, Gary sneaks up behind her and hits her in the back of the head. Then he begins choking her. He handcuffs her and drags her down into this cold, damp basement. There is a dirty mattress down there and he makes her lay on it. He attaches metal clamps to her ankles and connects them to a chain. He applied glue to the clamps and used a hairdryer to dry it. The other end of the chain was connected to a large pipe that came down from the ceiling. He lays his head in her lap and he goes to sleep. When they wake up, Josefina says there's enough light in the room to see what is all around her now. She's in some creepy basement and it's dark and cold. She sees a pit in the middle of the room and Gary is digging in it to make it wider and deeper. As she watched him working, he told her that all he ever wanted was a large family and that he had already fathered four children to four separate women but had lost contact with them. He tells, he, he tells her he wants her and nine other women to live down here together and all be pregnant by him. He wants this large polygamous family and lots of kids running around. Josefina is like, let me the fuck out of here. He stops working at one point and comes over and rapes her. The second time Josefina was left alone, she was almost able to escape. She was able to loosen one of the ankle clamps and pull the covers down off the window. She stretched the chain as far as it would go until she was halfway out the window. So she still had an ankle clamp on the chain and she is hanging halfway out the basement window screaming for someone to come help her, but no one heard her. Or the city is so awful and crime ridden that people may hear it and think it's just someone being robbed again. Gary heard her though, and he comes downstairs and begins beating her with a stick. He pulls her back inside. He forced her into the hole that he had been digging. This hole is still pretty small at this point, but will eventually get bigger. He made her place her chin on her chest and put a piece of plywood on the back of her head and set weights on it. He wants to make sure no one hears her screams, so he turns on a rock radio station and turns the volume all the way up and leaves her there. Josefina is in the dirt under this basement floor. She is very cold, in a lot of pain, and rock music is cranking at maximum volume. She cries out, but no one can hear her. 
Josefina is sitting there one day in the pit and rock music is still cranking loud and she hears a faint female voice. A bit, a bit of a wave of excitement comes over her thinking maybe she's being rescued, but instead she hears the woman yelling no and the sound of chains. The board over the pit is lifted and Josefina sees, sees another young black woman standing there wearing only a shirt. Gary introduces the woman as Sandy Lindsay. Gary leaves the two women alone. Sandy, like Josefina, was chained to the pipe as well. Josefina realizes once Sandy starts speaking that she is mentally disabled. Sandy tells Josefina that she and Gary have been friends for a long time. They met at the institution where Gary worked and she was a patient. She also said that she often has sex with Gary and his friend Tony. Josefina explains to her that Gary wants to keep them down here forever and have lots of babies and more women. Sandy is confused why her friend would want to do this to her. He, she said he usually looked after her. Unlike Josefina, Sandy has people looking for her. Her mother, her sister, and her cousins were all worried sick when she hadn't come home. Sandy was forced to write a letter to her mom saying she, she had run away. Gary even drove that letter to New York so it would be postmarked from New York when she got it. Sandy's mom told Philadelphia police that she thought her daughter was last known to go to a house at 3520 Marshall Street and the man who owned the house was named Gary. She didn't know his last name. The police went there and knocked and when no one answered, they didn't come back. Gary only feeds the two women once in a while, usually scraps. He rapes them daily. They aren't allowed to take baths or showers. They don't even have a toilet. He also hung them from the ceiling beam by one arm as a punishment if they acted out. If they called out for help, he would beat them or put them in the hole. The women would sometimes cling to each other when he wasn't around so they could stay warm. This is wintertime in Philadelphia and they're in a cold, dark basement in the city. I checked the weather history for December 1986 and it averaged around 45 to 50 degrees in the daytime and averaged between 17 to 29 degrees at night. It's around Christmas time, 1986. The streets of Philadelphia are bustling with holiday shoppers. It's a cold day and Gary is cruising around. He spots a pretty 19-year-old woman walking down the street. He yells something to her and she gets angry and tells him she's not a prostitute. I'm just walking to my friend's house. He apologized to her and offered her a ride. She sees this fancy car he's driving and assumes he's okay. He offers to make her dinner, buy her some clothes, and then take her to Atlantic City. She agrees and comes back to his house to eat, and he drugged her with something in her wine. She passes out, and he rapes her, and then handcuffs her and takes her to the basement where she will now live with Josefina and Sandy. When Lisa wakes up, they begin talking. Josefina says, how on earth are seven other women going to fit down here, let alone if we have to have all this man's kids? They know they have basically no way to escape. They just pray that the next girl is able to escape as soon as she is captured and tells police and they will be found. Keep in mind, people are still showing up for Gary's Sunday service at his house. His church is growing rapidly. The girls weren't allowed to make a sound. Ten days after Lisa's capture, Gary brings a woman home named Deborah to his house. Deborah is 23 years old. She is a sassy woman who doesn't take shit from anyone and she is not going down without a fight. She is taken to the basement and subjected to beatings just like the others. She constantly criticizes Gary and fights him back. Now all four women are beginning to not get along. 
because every time Deborah fought back, all of the women were punished. He even made them begin beating each other. He would assign Josefina to be in charge while he wasn't in the basement, and when he came back, she would have to tell him if one of the girls misbehaved. By misbehave, I mean trying to escape. Then Josefina would be instructed to beat the women. Now, if Josefina said nothing happened while you were gone, all the women got beaten by Gary. Every one of them did. So they have no way to win in any of this. Josefina is using her street smarts to try to win Gary over, make it seem like she was happy to be there. At this point, he gives the women a portable toilet to use and also baby wipes. They've been held captive for weeks and have been raped and beaten daily and they haven't even taken a shower. So the baby wipes would be their baths. He also makes them begin having sex with each other while he sat and watched. They are still given scraps for food, usually stale bread and occasionally hot dogs. One day he brings down cans of dog food. They don't want to eat it, but he beats them until they finally ate it. Gary brings home girl number five. She is the youngest of them all at only 18. Her name is Jacqueline. As he had done with all the others, he raped her and chained her up in the basement. This is January 18, 1987. It is Josefina's 26th birthday, and since she was his favorite, he was going to do something special for all of them. He brings home a bottle of champagne and Chinese food for the women. He gives Josefina a pair of slippers and a birthday cake. There's also a rumor that Josefina and Sandy are pregnant. They aren't pregnant, but if they tell him this, he may treat them better. He also seems to be happier that they are pregnant and the beatings aren't as severe. Gary is convinced that the girls were going to hear him leave in his car and try to escape. So he came up with a plan so that they wouldn't hear him every time he leaves. He goes into the basement where he chained them up by their hands and feet. He then took a screwdriver and jammed it into their ears. He wanted them to become deaf, so he's puncturing their eardrums with a screwdriver. The only one he didn't do this to was Josefina. One day he caught Sandy trying to remove the plywood from the top of the pit she was in. This is a major offense to him, and she is going to be punished severely. He handcuffs her to the ceiling beam, where she would have to hang for days. He forced her to eat bread bread because he believes that she's pregnant. She vomits every time, so he would hold her mouth closed until she swallowed it. Sandy is very weak, and she's beginning to be pretty sick. She's vomiting and running a high fever, and this isn't just having the flu or food poisoning or whatever, because Sandy eventually goes unconscious. Sandy is still hanging by one arm from the ceiling, and Gary can't wake her up, so he lets her drop to the ground and kicks her into the pit. Her body makes a thud as soon as it hits the dirt. He tells the others that she's faking it, and he's going to bring them back ice cream as her punishment, and she can't have any. Gary comes back with the ice cream and checks her pulse, and Sandy is dead. He carries her body upstairs, and a little while later, the girls hear a power saw. One of Gary's dogs comes in the basement carrying a long bone. The girls are disgusted, watching him eat it. Gary likely coerced the dog to go downstairs and eat the bone in front of them. Gary had cooked a lot of Sandy's body on the stove. The stench was horrible, and the girls hope neighbors will smell it and call the police. That did end up happening, and police show up, and Gary charms them by saying he overcooked a pot roast. 
I'm getting major Jeffrey Dahmer vibes here, but Gary isn't going to eat her. Instead, he ground up Sandy's remains and fed them to the dogs, and then he mixed it with dog food and forced the girls to eat it as well. Deborah is acting out again, saying like just like she was in the beginning. So he takes her upstairs and shows her Sandy's head in a crock pot. He also showed her all the body parts he had in the freezer. He tells her she is next if she keeps acting up. Then he started a new form of punishment, as if it couldn't get any worse. He strips the extension cord and plugs one end of it into a socket. And when he turned on the power, he would hold the wires together against their chains. This would send an electrical current through their bodies, almost like a mini electric chair. He found it so entertaining watching them move around from the current. The only one who he didn't shock was Josefina. Josefina is still playing her role almost as a partner to him. She has a plan for why she's doing this. She wants more freedom so she can escape and save the other girls. But now he wants to involve Josefina in the shocking. He wants her to participate, but these would be different and would involve water. He drills holes in the plywood, which is the cover for the pit that they're in. Josefina is instructed to fill the pit with water, which she does reluctantly. The three other women were instructed to get in the water. Josefina is instructed to push the wire down into the hole until it touches one of the chains. It sends electric current through them all. Then she has to do it again, and this time it makes contact with Deborah's chain. She is the one who had to absorb most of the current. She is fully electrocuted and screams out, and then she dies. The other two girls tell him she's dead, and he tells them, aren't you glad it wasn't one of you? Gary drags Deborah's body out, and then he made sandwiches for the girls. He comes back and tells Josefina to write down the date and the time. He then tells her to write that she participated in Deborah's death and helped murder her. He made her sign it when she was done. This piece of paper he will now use as a form of control over Josefina. She will now have more privileges, but if she messes up or tries to run, he has this signed document stating that she participated in Deborah's murder. I wouldn't give a shit. Prison would be a dream compared to what she's dealing with. The five women are down to four. Sandy and Deborah are dead. Lisa, Jacqueline, and Josefina are still alive, and Josefina is getting treated more humanely than the other two. After Deborah's murder, he removes Josefina's chains and lets her go upstairs and put clothes on. She had only been partially dressed for months. He wraps Deborah's body in plastic and places it in the freezer. Josefina is now allowed to sleep in Gary's bed with him. She is also allowed to go out to dinner and the grocery store and other places with him. He bought mattresses, blankets, and pillows for the two other girls to sleep on in the basement. He bought them a TV as well. They were still in their chains, though. Gary knows he has to do something with Deborah's body. He can't cook her like he did Sandy because the smell would be suspicious again. He learned that from the first time. Josefina and Gary load Deborah's body into the back of his van and discard of her in a wooded area called the Pine Barrens off the highway in New Jersey. Gary tells Josefina that if he is ever caught someday, he would plead insanity. He told her he'd been fooling doctors and nurses for years about his mental health, 
In fact, the army gives him 100% disability, and he lied about it all. He knew how to manipulate the tests. Gary tells Josefina he needs a replacement for Deborah, so they're going to drive around until they found someone. They found a young lady named Agnes, who agrees to go with them. Just like the others, she is raped, beaten, and chained up in the basement. On March 24th, Josefina is feeling brave. She tells Gary it's been four months and her family is probably worried sick. She wants to see her kids. She tells him, look, I'll make you a deal. If you let me go visit my family for one day, I will bring you back another girl. He likes the idea of Josefina providing the girl for him, so he agrees that this would be okay. He says, go visit your family, and here's the address of a gas station. I will pick you up and the new girl from the gas station at midnight. Don't do anything stupid. I have this note that implicates you for murder if you do. Gary drops her off a block from her family's home and drives off. He has nothing to worry about, right? She's not going to say a word. She will be arrested for murder if she does. But as soon as he's out of sight, Josephina is sprinting through the streets of Philadelphia. She runs to the house she shared with her boyfriend. Four months ago on Thanksgiving night, they had an argument, and that was the last time he saw her. She begins beating on the door as hard as she could. Her boyfriend answers, and she begins yelling, rape, beaten, girls, chains, basement, Gary, dog food, murder. She's screaming her story out to him, and he's wondering if she's just gone crazy or if she's on drugs. She shows him her ankles and wrist scars, and he says, well, I'm going down there, and I'm going to fuck this dude up. She tells him not to because he could get the other three girls killed. Instead, she says, we need to go to the police. She calls them from a payphone. The police arrive and are reluctant to believe her story. This sounds almost too awful to be true. She shows them her ankles and wrists and said that the other girls are in danger. Be careful when you go to his house. So instead of risking the girls being killed, they're going to stake out at the gas station that he's supposed to pick Josephina up at midnight. At midnight, Gary is sitting in his white Cadillac and officers approach the vehicle. Gary jokes and says, you guys are doing all of this over some child support payments I missed? They tell him, no, you're in way more trouble than that. Gary's reign of terror is finally over and he is placed under arrest. At 5 a.m., don't ask me why it took five hours, on March 25, 1987, officers approach Gary's home where Josephina claims three other women are being held. Remember that weird lock that Gary had on his front door? That doesn't help them to get in at all. Officers are forced to break down the front door. They go in the basement and there's two women sleeping on a mattress with chains connected to a ceiling beam. The women wake up and start screaming. They explain that they are police officers and they are here to rescue them. They notice how cold it is down there and they are only wearing shirts and have a thin blanket. One of the officers asks if there are any other women down there. They point to a piece of plywood on the floor. An officer goes over and removes the plywood and there is Agnes, the newest girl, naked at the bottom of the pit. They get her out and remove all the chains from the women and then they start looking through the rest of the house. They find a food processor which was used to grind up Sandy's remains. They also find various body parts in the freezer. They excavated the front and backyards and didn't find any other human remains. 
They also found that he wasn't just surviving off of his Army's disability check every month. Gary had $500,000 in an investment account. Today, in 2023, that is equivalent to $1.3 million. On his first night in jail, he tried to commit suicide by hanging himself in the prison shower. He spent a night in the hospital before getting taken back to jail. It's amazing that Gary is in jail and getting better treatment than his victims did. One month later, it is now April 23, 1987. Gary makes his first court appearance. He has a really good lawyer, too. All of these women are going to testify and gave graphic descriptions of what happened. When Josephina takes the stand, Gary's lawyer accuses her of having been a willing participant. Even Lisa said how she was the one who put the wire in the pit which electrocuted Deborah. Josephina claims that she was afraid of death and did what she had to do to stay alive. On June 20th, 1988, Gary's trial begins. Gary and his hotshot lawyer are trying to prove that he's suffering from insanity and should only be found of second-degree murder, which would exclude him from the death penalty. If he's charged with first-degree murder, he could face the death penalty. And the verdict is ready. For the murder of Deborah Dudley, guilty in the first degree. For the murder of Sandra Lindsay, guilty in the first degree. Those were the two main charges. Next is the list for everything else. Gary was convicted on 18 charges. Two counts of first-degree murder, five counts of rape, six counts of kidnapping, four counts of aggravated assault, and one count of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. Gary's sentence is read the next day. He sat with a blank stare as he was sentenced to the death penalty. Gary's father, Michael, said that he hadn't seen his son in 20 years. He told one reporter, I hope to hell they hang him for what he did, and you can quote me on that. I'll even pull the rope. He also denied all the abuse allegations from Gary's childhood. So remember, Gary still has this $500,000 investment account. A lot of it went to the three remaining victims, and I love that for them. Gary's church stayed active even after his arrest. More than 50 people st still showed up for service. Gary's execution date is July 6, 1999. He was only the third person to be executed in Pennsylvania and is currently the last person that Pennsylvania executed. Gary's last meal before his execution was two slices of cheese pizza and a cup of black coffee. He was put to death by lethal injection. Jacqueline attended Gary's execution as well as Sandy and Deborah's families. Jacqueline says she watched him die and it didn't heal anything or make her feel any better. Josephina said she didn't want him to be executed. She wanted him to have to sit in a small cell for the rest of his life. Janet Perkins, who was the mother of Sandy, who was the first of the girls to die, said if police would have just listened to her, her daughter would still be alive today, and the rest of the girls would have had to endure the torture. And she's right. She gave him his address and everything. Remember, they showed up, and when no one answered, they just left and never came back. Jacqueline, Agnes, and Lisa all still suffer with hearing loss from the screwdriver incident. Josephina wrote a book entitled Cellar Girls, which talks about their time in the basement. Jacqueline held a lot of resentment towards Josephina because she thought she was in on it with Gary. It took 30 years for the women to meet, and Josephina explained why she did what she did. One year after Gary's trial, Josephina was back to working as a sex worker, but she eventually stopped, and she also stopped using drugs. 
She currently lives in Atlantic City, New Jersey with her husband. She enjoys walks on the beach and is still very triggered when she sees chains or handcuffs. If they come on TV, she has to turn it off. Jacqueline lives in Philadelphia and has two adult sons. She works as a house cleaner, but refuses to enter the client's basement. She suffered from flashbacks and has to take medication for her anxiety. Lisa and Agnes were never really able to recover from the experience and have dealt with mental health issues and addiction over the years. That's it for this week. Rest in peace to both Sandy and Deborah, two young ladies who had their lives taken by this monster. My heart also goes out to Gary's victims whose lives are forever changed. Take care and much love to you all.